Good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome back to the Pastor's Class. We're glad to have you joining us tonight as we continue our study through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, you ought to know there's a couple resources we want to commend to you. Uh, one of them's free. We actually publish a PDF guide that'll help you walk through our content for each night. Now, you can find that on our website. It should actually be linked to this live stream. And in addition to that, uh, we want to commend to you a commentary. It's a real simple, small, accessible commentary uh, that you could purchase at a bookstore on Amazon. It's called the Christ-Centered Exposition Series, and this particular volume, of course, is on First and Second Thessalonians by Mark Howell. We really depend on that commentary for this study, so I commend it to you. Go ahead and pick it up. Now, as we turn our attention to the text tonight, uh, last week we made a transition. We completed 1 Thessalonians and we started 2 Thessalonians last week. And today we're going to pick up in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me there to 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6. And before I read it, well, why don't we just set a little bit of context to help us understand the import of what Paul is writing to these believers at the church at Thessalonica. Uh, just in the most simplistic terms, you ought to know that these believers, well, they were in a city that did not share their faith. They were a persecuted people. These were a people that were going against the grain. They were swimming upstream in a culture that was degrading, and they had become weary they began to wonder, is this worth it? Moreover, they began to sincerely wonder, when is Jesus coming back? When's he coming? We're getting tired of this. Is he going to return? When, when, when are we going to see relief? When are we going to at last receive that which we have longed for? That's the question overriding Paul's language, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6. And so if you found that, I invite you to read with me. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, Since indeed God considers it just to repay you with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in a flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know, uh, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, that He may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that by the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and that you would take this word and apply it to the hearts of these dear brothers and sisters. Use me in spite of me, Lord, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the good of this church we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It goes without saying, we are not promised tomorrow. Our days are literally numbered. These circumstances that we find ourselves in presently, well, they've illuminated all the more acutely the hard reality that we're not promised tomorrow. I take a look at my little baby girl. She just turned two years old. 
you take a look at your little child, they just graduated high school. Time is fleeing. Time goes by in the blink of an eye. Things are changing. Just take a look at the photos of your family on your bookshelves at home. They're changing. They're growing. Loved ones have passed. We're not promised tomorrow. Time is short. Eternity is long. And the text tonight presses upon our hearts this reality that we ought not forget. Judgment is coming. Time is short. Eternity is long. And judgment's coming. And it should make each of us as believers step back and ask ourselves, why do we not live in light of this reality? Why am I so prone to live just with my eyes fixated on the present with no view of the horizon? Why am I so myopic? Why am I so nearsighted? Why, is it, why am I so inclined to just see what's two feet in front of me and to rarely, if ever, live in light of eternity that is on that horizon? If you have a child joining you tonight who's listening, and I want to speak to you, children, I want you to hear that you are not too young to start thinking about eternity. If there's any teenagers in your family who may be overhearing this broadcast tonight, I pray they hear that they not fall victim to the natural tendency to think, I can think about eternal things one day, but for now I'm just going to enjoy this life. Perhaps many of you who are in the middle of your careers, you may be wondering, man, I'm just so busy. There's so much urgency in my life right now that one of these days when things slow down, then I'll start living in light of eternity. Perhaps the eldest amongst us joining us tonight, perhaps you're even tempted to think, my word, I've spent so much of my life not living in light of eternity. It frightens me to now think about this. Today I want each of you, indeed I pray each of you would join me in doing something we must do. And that's take the corrective lens of God's Word and finally put them on. Just like a pair of glasses, you put them on and you can at last see. I had to do this my freshman year of college. I didn't realize that I was nearsighted, that I was having trouble seeing far away. And at last, when I put those glasses on, I could see the horizon. I could see the distinguishing marks of leaves. I remember looking up for the first time wearing my glasses and I noticed the stars actually did appear to twinkle of sorts. I had never really seen that before. I put those glasses on and I could finally see in clear relief the horizon. And that's what I'm calling you to do as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's put on the corrective lens of God's Word. And as we do, we will see in clear relief the eternal destinies that God has laid before us. Indeed, what Paul makes clear in this text in the most simplistic fashion, there are but two roads, two paths. We have reached a fork and the eternal destinies are laid before us. There is infinite joy awaiting those who receive Christ and there is infinite sorrow, infinite judgment awaiting those who reject Him. And so today, if you're taking notes, I want you to feel with me the weight of this, not altogether profound reality, but if you believe it, if you trust it, if you live in light of it, it'll profoundly change the way you live. That reality is simply this. You will one day stand before Christ in judgment. 
This is the weight of the Apostle Paul's argument to the church at Thessalonica. And so I wonder if today you're joining in, uh, maybe you find yourself a little distracted. I pray that you are sobered today by the Apostle Paul's words, that you'll stop letting all the things right in front of you distract you from the great realities he lays before you. Maybe you find yourself a little despondent. You're a little depressed today. Everything that's going on in your life, everything that's on the news has just got you, you're in a funk. I pray that the Apostle Paul's words will encourage you that setting your sight on the horizon, seeing eternity in clear relief won't scare you. It will bring you utter and complete, unspeakable joy. Maybe you feel drained. There's a lot of pressure on your family right now, a lot of pressure that I would never have any way to know about. If you find yourself drained today, I pray the Apostle Paul's words will strengthen you and that you will, in light of 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6, you'll be able to live with added gracious strength in light of eternity. For the Apostle Paul, he presents two paths, and so mark these two simple paths down. Number one, infinite joy awaits those who seek Him. I want you to see this with me beginning in verse 6. You're going to notice he starts talking about two paths here, and I want you to just see this with me. Ready? Beginning in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, uh, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, and of course He continues in this argument, he, he creates this distinction, this dichotomy. You see this rub between these two paths coming. There is a repayment coming, and put that on the shelf. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But He speaks words of hope and comfort when He says, there is something joyful coming. You could describe it as this. There is a joyful relief coming for those who seek Christ. Maybe today you feel more than you ever have in your life that being a Christian doesn't give you much benefit temporally. Following Christ is getting more difficult by the day. There's not a lot of cultural credibility that comes with going to church. There's not a lot of benefit in terms of our society, our culture, from trusting in God's Word. All the more we are starting to feel the rub as believers. Now, this is not a unique phenomenon for us. Indeed, our experience still pales in comparison to so many believers throughout the history of the church, including many believers today in pockets all over the world. But persecution is coming in gradations. And as it comes, you are going to feel, I am going to sense all the more this longing desire for relief. Oh Lord, is this battle worth it? Lord, can I stay persevering? Lord, will I be sustained through this? And Christ's precious promise to us is that infinite joy awaits we who seek Him with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. And in particular, there is this joyful relief coming. And it's a relief from two different categories, in my judgment, as Paul describes. In one sense, he promises that we're going to get a joyful relief from our enemies. Because if you'll notice, he says he's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And in turn, he's going to grant relief to those of us who have been afflicted. You know, it's, it's very easy to see enemies of God as having the upper hand in our society, is it not? 
This isn't a, a new phenomenon for we as American believers in the 21st century. As old as the book of Psalms, you'll see the psalmist cry out again and again how it appears that unbelievers have the upper hand, that these God-haters, they have some sort of ascendancy <clears throat> over those who are trying to trust in the Lord. And Jesus is calling us to remember that there is a great promise to be had if we simply trust Him and stay strong in this present circumstances. There is a great promised relief coming. God is going to vindicate the righteous. He is at last going to be the one that enacts final justice and judgment. We must simply be found faithful. His righteousness demands it. Indeed, His conception of justice demands it. Jesus will one day return and He will grant us relief from those enemies who seek to wage war with our soul. But there's an added layer to this. A relief is coming not just from the enemies of God. A relief is coming from our own present sorrows. Look with me, if you will, at verse 7. He says He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted. This measure of relief is going to come, and at last we're going to have every tear wiped away from our eyes. There is a day coming where all the pain and sorrow and hurt and confusion and doubt and despair and despondency is going to be wiped away. There's a day coming where we are going to at last see the infinite joy we have tasted and seen in part this side of eternity. You know, sorrow often seems to be our lot. Uh, just this morning and yesterday morning, I read in my time of devotions the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a wonderful candid, raw text that describes a man, this preacher, the author of the book, who is wrestling with the hard philosophical realities of life. And he takes seriously the fact that, you know, all too often in our experience, in our existence, it seems that those who trust in the Lord, those who try to live according to His precepts, their life doesn't look altogether different than those who live by their flesh, those who do everything they desire. Indeed, oftentimes it seems like those who reject the Lord get to enjoy the good life better than those who trust the Lord. Sorrow can seem to be our lot. And so we must set our faces with a nose pointed towards the future and recognizing that great relief is coming. There's going to be relief from our enemies. There is great joyful relief coming from our sorrows. One day, Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eye. We must, we must, we must be found faithful. Dear brothers and sisters, infinite joy awaits you. Joyful relief. But there's another layer to this. I want to skip a couple verses because we're going to talk about uh, this other path in a moment. And look with me at the end of this paragraph, the end of this passage. Beginning in verse 10, I want you to see that in addition to relief, there's going to be a joyful reward coming. <clears throat> in fact, that, I would say, is the twin things you need to keep your eyes on. Look to the future, as Christ has called us to, and see the relief He promises and see the reward He promises. All throughout the Bible, the Lord Jesus uses this language of a promised reward. There is a reward coming. What is the nature of this reward. Well, look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 10. 
He says, when the Lord Jesus comes on that day, that great day of His second coming, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. That's a strange word. It says one day the Lord Jesus is going to come back, and when He does, He's going to be glorified in His saints. Now, why would He not say the Lord Jesus is going to be glorified by His saints or in front of His saints? Why does it say in His saints? Well, I think that's because what Jesus is kind of drawing out for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, I think He is illuminating for us this amazing reality. There's going to come a day where you and I are going to stand as trophies, as it were, of His glorious grace. All of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we will one day bow down at His feet and we will shine forth His magnificent glory. It, it would be akin to electricity in a light bulb. What makes a light bulb shine? Well, the electricity is flowing through the filament of the light bulb, and it causes the filament to glow, hence the light. And that is what it's going to be for us in the all e uh, eternity. We are going to shine forth, reflect, indeed we are going to do what we were made to do, reflect the glory of God. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to be glorified in us. He is going to see His glory magnified through us. And so I want you to see that that's part of the reward coming. There is going to come a day where you and I are going to be rewarded with future glory. This future glory is where God at last will make true what we were made to do. From the very beginning, we were made to reflect the glory of God. But in that Garden of Eden, everything fell apart. We rejected God. We turned our backs on Him. And from that day forward, our image of Him has been marred. We're made in the image of God, but we do not reflect Him the way we were designed to. It'd be like a mirror that's got mud on it. It's still a mirror, but when you look in it, you're not going to see yourself clearly. That's what sin has done to us. It has marred the image of God within us. But one day He's going to restore us. He's going to make us anew. And when that day comes, we will reflect Him perfectly, clearly. We will do at last what we were made to do. And therein lies the joyful reward that awaits you. You were made for this. And everything in creation that does what it was made to do, that thing is experiencing its perfection. It's experiencing what it was made to do. So, for example, if I had a lawnmower and I were to take that lawnmower and to go drive it on the gravel, well, would that lawnmower work? Of course not. It wasn't designed to mow the gravel. It's going to explode. But what is a lawnmower made to do? Where is it going to experience it, its design? Of course, mowing the grass. And, Lord willing, you take good care of it, it's going to last for a long time because that's what a lawnmower is made to do. You and I have been experiencing lives where we are not doing what we were made to do. We are living in a world in which everything about this existence is not by God's design anymore. It is broken. It is marred. That's why my body is aging and your body is aging. That's why our minds are beginning to grow dull. That's why we are seeing death, destruction, depression. That's why we are experiencing the fallen effects of creation. 
But there's going to come a day where all of that is going to be made new. We are going to experience this future glory where we are glorified in Christ Jesus, where we are going to shine forth His glory and at last do what we were made to do. And so take heart, dear brothers and sisters. There's a reward coming. And that reward is a reward of future glory where we will at last experience resurrected bodies and experience the full effects of the joy the Lord has prepared for us. But lest we get too heavenly minded, lest our heads just float up into the clouds and we stop living in light of reality, the Apostle Paul pulls us back down to earth. For we see in verse uh, 11, the Apostle Paul say, but let's not forget about how you and I need to live in the present. Don't be so future-minded that you totally neglect the present. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. He says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, that He may fulfill every resolve for good work in you. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, Hey, listen, don't forget to live right now. Don't forget that you are not just rewarded future glory, Part of your reward is present grace. Part of your reward is that the Lord is going to sustain you day by day. And and he kind of gives us two different ways the Lord presently gives us grace in verses 11 and 12. On the one hand, he shows us that he's going to give you and I a grace to be changed. He's going to start transforming you from the inside out. That's why he uses the word, I'm going to pray that the Lord is going to make you worthy. When he says He's going to make us worthy. That doesn't mean He's going to make us able to earn salvation. It means He's going to change us. He's going to conform us so that our lives reflect what the Lord has already done in us. When God saves you, He declares you righteous, even though you're not. But after He declares you righteous, which the Bible calls justification, He is going to continue that good work in you. And the Bible uses the language sanctification to describe this process, where he starts to change you and to make you reflect what he has already declared you to be positionally. So there's going to come a day where we're going to stand before his throne of grace and the Lord Jesus is going to behold a person who has been transformed into his image by the grace of God. This is the reward for following Christ. He is going to change you slowly from the inside out. He is going to make you worthy of the high calling to which you and I have been called. Moreover, here's that second layer to this great uh, reward that's coming. One, also, one additional uh, aspect to this present grace that the Lord has given us is He's going to give us the grace to be useful. You ever find yourself wondering, do I have any skills? Do I have any ability to contribute to the body of Christ? Maybe you don't feel like you are a gifted enough teacher. Uh, You're not gifted enough intellectually to feel like you could really handle the Bible and explain it to anybody else. Maybe your personality type's a little more shy and you're wondering, could I ever really be used to make disciples, to share the gospel with others? Lord, what, what am I used for? Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. He says he's going to pray not only that the Lord will make us worthy of his calling. It says that he's going to pray that every resolve for good and every work of faith would be fulfilled in us by his power. In other words, we ought to be praying one for the other that the Lord will do such a work within us that we will be able to fulfill by his power what he's called us to. 
And so by God's grace, one of the great rewards He's promised us is that He will do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. The Lord Jesus does not call the equipped. He actually genuinely does equip those whom He calls. So take heart, dear brother and sister. The Lord can do in you what you do not see possible in and of yourself. Indeed, He delights to use those who do not see themselves as uniquely gifted or equipped for this ministry. Why? Because He's in it for His glory, not yours and not mine. And so there's a very real good chance that the Lord will magnify His name more through you than a man who's gone through years of seminary. There's a very good chance that God might use you who feel like you don't have any gift of public speaking than those who preach on the largest platforms in America. Praise be to God that He uses us in spite of us for His name's sake. Take heart. Infinite joy awaits those who seek Him. Joyful relief and joyful reward. But let's conclude our time tonight by looking to that middle section that I have not addressed adequately. For we see in the middle of this passage a sobering reality. Indeed, one path of infinite joy awaits those who seek Him. But there is a left path. There is another. There is a twin eternal destiny that you and I must take seriously. Number two, mark this down. Infinite judgment awaits those who reject Him. I want you to see that you nor I, nor any we know, are naturally inclined to think we deserve judgment. We're just not wired that way. We're all naturally hardwired to self-justify, to think that if the Lord were real and He were to judge, we wouldn't be judged because of X, Y, and Z. I have people that I love dearly who don't really believe in the Lord, but have said, if the Lord is real, They'll go to heaven because they've lived good lives. I have others who balk at the idea that God could ever judge. How could a good loving God ever be a God who created and punishes to eternal damnation, a place called hell? How is that a possible reality? I want to share with you just anecdotally something that happened in my own life. One of the greatest theological shifts for me happened when I was a late teenager where I was wrestling with, well, what does it mean for God to be a God of love? How can He genuinely take men and women and punish them eternally? Until it struck me at last, and this has changed me ever since, to see what genuine, true, real justice and goodness in this universe is. How do you define good? How do you define just? How do you define right? God Himself alone can define these things. He is the only norm by which we can judge any of this. And therefore, we must conclude that what is good and right and just and proper for a holy God to do is to judge each and every one of us. All of us have so woefully fallen short of His glory that it would be the most just thing in the world for Him to punish every person who's ever drawn a breath. And the sheer fact that He doesn't is unspeakable grace. That He calls us out of darkness into wonderful light. That He opens our eyes to behold Him for who He is. And when I at last saw that, everything about my relationship with the Lord changed. I would describe it as a conversion from seeing the gospel as news to seeing the gospel as good news. Where at last I was like, dear mercy, I cannot believe He saved me. I, I don't deserve this and it's, 
It's hard for me to even explain how much I fall short of this. And the fact that God would save me from this, it makes me want to fall on my face and worship Him forever. I want you to see the weight of this infinite judgment that's coming that the Apostle Paul describes for us in verses, well, I, I think we should say 6, 8, and 9. Three things I want you to see, three descriptors of this judgment coming. First off, I want you to see it is indeed, as I've already kind of explained, it's a just judgment. Look with me, if you will, at verse 6. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, Listen, there's going to come a day where God is going to judge mankind, and when He does, it will be just. He gets to determine what constitutes justice. He gets to determine what's right and wrong. And there will come a day where He enacts this judgment, this justice, and it will be the definition of perfect. It will be the definition of just. There is going to come a day where we are all going to stand before the Lord in judgment. And whatever He declares, that will, in the final analysis, be right, true, and just. It's just, but I want you to see that it is not merely just. This is also a dreadful judgment. I want you to see the words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe this judgment. In verse 6, he uses the word affliction. That word affliction in the original language is thlipsis, and that word means a pressure or a tribulation. There is a weight that is going to come on those who reject Christ. There is coming a, a pain, something that is going to be so real and felt in every pore of your being, every bone in your body, that you will not be able to escape or rationalize away this affliction that comes. These are dreadful words. I want you to see the next word that the Apostle Paul uses. In verse 8, he describes it as inflicting vengeance. Now, that word vengeance is an unusual word because it might sound like God is some sort of vengeful, vindictive guy. You know, he's just getting back. Kind of sounds fleshly. But I want you to see that this word vengeance, when the Lord says he is going to inflict vengeance on those who reject him, in the original language, that word really connotes uh, full punishment. It's not a vindictive nature. What he means is he is going to finally give what is due. And there's going to be a totality of what you deserve. It's coming. Judgment is coming. In short, it's going to be fair and right and just. It's going to be earned. It's going to be deserved. There is an affliction coming. There is a vengeance coming. And lastly, in verse 9, he says, there is a destruction coming. That word destruction in the original language, it talks about ruination, or you could describe it like this. It's not going to be annihilation. When you are finally judged one day, you're not going to disappear. There are some people who wrongly teach that final judgment just means your soul will disappear and it'll be non-existence. We don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Here's what we do believe. Your entire meaning and purpose and reason for existence will essentially, as it were, disappear. In other words, destruction's coming where you will be separated from God and every reason you were created will no longer ever be able to be fulfilled. The reason for which you were made to reflect the glory of God will be infinitely separated from you and you will no longer be able to fulfill it. Destruction is coming. It's a dreadful, dreadful judgment coming. And lastly, I want you to feel the final weight of this reality. It's a final judgment. 
final judgment is coming. For look with me, if you will, at the latter half of verse 9, where he says, we're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What makes that so bad? Well, the essence of hell is not the pitchfork and the flames that cartoons and pop culture would lead you to believe. What makes hell, hell is separation from God. There is nothing worse than being utterly and completely separated from the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the one for which you were made. Complete separation is the definition of hell. And when that day comes, the Bible is clear. There will be no return. There will be no second chance. And so, let's conclude our time together by just reminding ourselves that eternity lies before us. The corrective lens of God's Word have been put on. I trust you can now see all the more clearly the two destinies that lie before each of us, as the Apostle Paul has described. Infinite joy awaits those who seek Him, and infinite judgment awaits those who reject Him. And so, for those of you joining today who are believers, who have tasted and seen that God is good, I want you to reflect with me. Live. Oh God, help me live in light of eternity. Lord, would you help me to live with my eyes fixated on the horizon? Lord, would you help me to live bearing in mind that future joyful relief and future joyful rewards lie before me? Oh God, may I be found faithful. But for those of you who may have just tuned in tonight, maybe you stumbled upon this, you know a lot about the Lord, but you know you don't know Him. You know your eyes are not fixated on the joy that lies before you. You're not sure that you're saved. I want you to be sobered by the fact that judgment awaits those who do not turn from their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, I invite you to just simply cry out to God and say, Oh God, I'm a sinner. Oh, Father in heaven, I need you to do in me what I cannot do in myself. Lord, I confess that I have been running from you, that I have rejected you. God, would you save me? And in His infinite loving kindness and grace, the Bible teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Cry out to Him in faith and watch Him change you from the inside out. For God so loved this world, that He gave His only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Would you join me in fighting this fight of faith to live in light of that wonderful eternity that lies ahead? Would you join me as we pray to that end? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Would you take this word and apply it to their hearts so that they and I might live in light of this wonderful eternal reality that lies ahead of us. Do this, Lord, we pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.